Marini's Media. Totally football show. Today, we're going to go so retro. As we look back on Champions League 97-98, Newcastle beating Barcelona and Real Madrid waiting three decades for a European title. Different times. Plus, we're looking ahead with Wafer's new way forward for getting the seasons done around the continent. And we'll find out for whom the Intertotally Cup is already over as Matt Davis-Adams takes on Michael Cox in the quiz. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Wrong thinking's Morrissey with uh, every day is like Sunday there. But of course, it's something called Thursday today. Ask your folks, Thursday. Uh, and it's a new Tony Football Show. And a big hello to Julien Laurent. Bonjour, Jimbo. Bonjour, everyone. Bonjour à toi. Hola, Alvaro Romeo. Hola, ¿qué tal? Muy bien, gracias. And De nada. Ayop, <laughs> James Horncastle. Hey up, lad. How are you? Yeah, all very good. <laughs> very good. Wow, that's extraordinary to hear. It's a bit like, I guess, for American audiences when they heard a Christian Bale first speaking in an English accent after seeing him in Batman. No? <laughs> yes. Did after six weeks of lockdown, I, I look like Bale in The Machinist right now. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's fair. Could you do a bit more Yorkshire, gonna... though? Aye. I can if you like. Uh, it are you worried uh, about your hair, James? What's no, I'm more worried about my wife's desire to cut it. That's oh, what I'm, that's what I'm praying about. Right, put the full stop wherever you want in that sentence, basically. You have to go full team Howard, man. Mm. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's get some news then. Still confusion about when uh, football will be resuming the current season, or indeed if. But some pretty positive word coming out of UEFA, who this Tuesday had another of their big video conferences, which ended with them setting out a format for the conclusion of this season. They'd like to have all the respective federations concluding their competitions before the 31st of July so that they can then stage the Cups in August, potentially with uh, one-legged quarterfinals and semifinals. That's uh, a pretty positive stance. How optimistic do you think they're being? Well, look, I mean, the virus is still in control. Um, different countries are at different stages of their... Uh, let's say rate of infection and how they're dealing with the virus. So they can't really talk concretely about when, but they can maybe look at how. And I, I think as we've seen in their sort of discussions with leagues over over recent weeks, yeah, the, I think the, the priority is to get the league football done and then have uh, European competitions um, played at the end of that. But you know, as, as as we keep seeing, while they their desire is for harmonisation across Europe, um, so leagues to restart as closely and as aligned as possible, yeah, that is very difficult to achieve when um, leagues are acting on different advice from governments. We've seen what's happened in the Netherlands um, this week, where um, they've suggested that there won't be any football until the beginning of September, which again, would kind of throw a spanner in, in, in UEFA's work. So I think it remains a very complicated situation um, and very difficult to plan for. 
What I found interesting is that um, for the first time UEFA said that some special cases will be heard um, regarding um, participation in European competitions, uh, meaning this that probably they will have to have a plan if uh, the Dutch league or the Belgian league or any other doesn't resume uh, who goes to Europe next season, who plays championship, who plays Europa League. Because we cannot forget that uh, countries like uh, Holland or Belgium, they've got uh, a tremendous death rate per million inhabitants. So the virus is well spread over there. And of course, uh, UEFA can only offer guidelines, but it will be the national governments who decide finally uh, whether a competition will be played or not. Absolutely. Meanwhile, Newcastle News, the ongoing takeover by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, has hit an obstacle outcry, as you might expect, over the Saudis' suitability. What's been the objection here? Is it war crimes, human rights, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi? No, James, it's uh, television rights and how they are being devalued um, by alleged piracy. Um, out of I Saudi think you Arabia. Could just which... call it piracy. There's not much yeah, alleged it's not about. Alleged. I mean, they call the channel "Be Out Q," just to take the mic <laughs> off being being sports. I mean, it's I genius. Just the name in itself, whether you agree or not with the piracy and you know the illegal stream. Probably not. You probably don't agree with it. You don't so agree. Being, but... but being sport, two are the biggest overseas rights holders of, of, of the Premier League, and as such, have a certain amount of clout in terms of Premier League matters, have written to all the club owners and the Premier League to urge them to block this takeover because they say that Saudi Arabia are not suitable because they fund Be Out Q, which is a pirate service which illegally shows Premier League matches by essentially running a line of be-in sports. Uh, yes, service. because of the boycott and the uh, the blockage between Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia have blocked... Uh, the feed from from Qatar to uh, to to Saudi Arabia. So if you live in Saudi Arabia, you cannot get being sport to watch the Premier League or the Serie A or the Champions League or Ligue 1. And instead, as you said, they funded this uh, illegal stream called BRQ. So then you can watch it on there, which is obviously completely illegal. And and you see what being sport trying to do, and it's, it's probably even more politically and just simply finding an excuse to try to block the Saudis buying a European club more than anything else, but it will be resolved by BRQ disappearing and, mm. and, and the Qatari allow, not saying anything about the Saudis taking over Newcastle. All right, Jules, you've been writing about who uh, Newcastle can buy with their new blood-splattered uh, billions. Who, who have they got on the list? Yeah, the interest, so there's, there's two sides of it. One is the manager, uh, because if Steve Bruce believes that he has a future at the club, I think he's wrong and he can only try to book his next holiday. Because that's what that's, that's what they do. That's difficult, Jules. Yeah, that's difficult. He doesn't know when. But we aren't going on holiday for a long time. <laughs> yeah, true. If you look, for example, at when the Qatari took over at PSG, uh, the manager was was Antoine Combrari. He was top of the league at Christmas, and they replaced him by Carlo Ancelotti, uh, who didn't win the league in the end. But because they wanted a much bigger name than than whoever was in place, and it would be the same, unfortunately, for Steve Bruce. Uh, like it was the same for Mark Hughes at Manchester City. That, that's mm. what they do. First of all, it has to be the manager and then the First players. they came for the manager. Yeah. yeah, no, but in terms of manager, they have a very ambitious shortlist in uh, the four names that they've drawn so far. Uh, two are out of a job right now in Max Allegri and, and Mauricio Pochettino. And then the other two are already in a job. Rafa Benitez, who could come back to Newcastle, who is in China, and Lucien Favre, who is at Borussia Dortmund. So uh, it'd be very interesting to see what happens. And then in terms of players... Because of financial fair play, people have to stop believing that they can go out and spend 500 million this summer. That won't happen. Uh, but they will still be able to, to, to sign big players. 
especially if they are of contract. That's why so far they've been targeting or looking into targeting players like Dries Mertens, like Edinson Cavani, who are out of contract in the summer, who could be easier for Newcastle to, to go and get them and still try to balance their book at the end of the season with financial fair play. In other news, and on a happier note, Barcelona, Alvaro, are going to sell the naming rights to the camp now for the first time ever for a very good cause. Yes, and it is probably one of the best ideas that Barcelona has had and definitely this directing board. For the first time in their history, they are going to look for a sponsor to name the stadium and the money earned will be, during the first season, will be donated to fight coronavirus. It's still to be determined whether it will be Camp Nou plus the sponsor name or vice versa, sponsor name plus Cam Nou. Uh, Josep Vives, the Barcelona spokesman, uh, couldn't answer that question uh, last Tuesday. Uh, and this is not exactly like an auction because there is no starting price. So let's see, but uh, it's a very good thing for Barcelona. And uh, the first good news in a while as well, because Barcelona was the first team in Spain that forloved their staff. Um, six uh, members from the directing board uh, resigned over the last month. And this is clearly something that Barcelona has done right and when a club does something right it has to be said. Okay Alvaro you said the money from the first season would go to the fight against coronavirus is this because I'd understood this was a kind of one-off thing we'll do this for a season to raise money but is the suggestion that they're actually going to just have sponsorship from now on but they're kind of introducing it by making it for coronavirus? Yeah you you could uh, read it like that obviously but uh, obviously a company that uh, decides to sponsor Barcelona's Camp Nou from now on not only will be giving money to Barcelona, but will be giving money for coronavirus, at least for a year. So this is also mm. a very good uh, PR work for whichever company wants to sponsor Barcelona. And a lot of money, really. Atletico de Madrid is making up to 10 million euro per season uh, for the naming rights of the stadium. And I can mm. imagine that Barcelona signing that contract four years after Atletico did with Wanda and uh, being Barcelona probably a bigger club, uh, they will get more money than Atletico. Definitely, they will match the 10 million um, cap, but I, I can imagine that 15 or 20 million per year uh, is nothing crazy to think about. And 20 million going to the coronavirus fight, uh, it's very good news. Impressive sums there, Alvaro. Well, lots of listeners writing in after our last edition, in which we talked about Swedish footballer Ellen Ekbombach, who's also an epidemiologist, which is very impressive. Hannes Waller writes, I don't think you're giving Ellen Ekbom back enough credit for his post-football career. Not only is he fighting against COVID-19, but he's also been disguised as a woman all this time. Quite the feat, if you ask me. Indeed, Hannes. Apologies for that, Ellen, who, of course, is actually female. The clue's rather in the name. Uh, but tremendously impressive stuff. Uh, this was all part of our discussion of post-football careers. Do you know what Stefan Givarch is doing now? What's he doing now, Jules? He's selling swimming pools. Is he? And s- some say he's a much better swimming pool seller than he was a football player. Is he a World a Cup winning uh, swimming pool salesman? Yeah, exactly. He sells World Cup pools. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, Ellis Mizen links that with the quiz from our last show uh, by mentioning that Sergei Baltacha was his PE teacher at his first secondary school. Sasha Gurionov leaps in and says... Ah, was that Bacon's College? I play football there. This is Sasha. Uh, Sergey is back at Charlton now. He taught Joe Gomez a thing or two about the game. Wow. More on that topic to come. Petters, meanwhile, gets in touch to say, loving the ISO pods, guys. Thank you, Petters. 
segment suggestion to replace flicks and kicks. How about ads with the lads, where you compare, he continues, the best football ads of all time and dissect the matchups, lineups, and who would win. For me, it's a final of Nike The Mission, which is that great one with Edgar Davids in the kendo outfit, uh, and uh, Adidas's Road to Lisbon. Road to Lisbon was the before the 04 Euros, obviously. Yes. And wasn't it the one where they were on the mopeds? I think they were on those little motorbikes. You know, and Zidane is at the bottom of Beckham's flat and Beckham throws the ball and Zidane controls it in a very insolent way. And then a few keep you up is, and then he goes on his moped with his predators and they go through Paris and... And uh, I don't remember how he ends and who else was in there, but I remember Beckham and Zidane were at the beginning of it. They get to Lisbon, Jules. That's how it ends. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I don't know who yeah. else was in the advert. That's what I meant. Sorry. There's Ashley Cole, Oliver Kahn, who looks great on a moped. Right. And then they kind of get ambushed by the Spaniards led by mm. Raul. Um, quite a menacing group of three Spaniards in kind of red mopeds. It's, more, uh... more menacing <laughs> in the ad than in, in the Euros itself because Spain didn't go through the group stage. That's yeah. very, very true. All right, well, much more on this exciting topic later on. Also, plenty of comment on the quiz. Daniel Barber says the specialist subjects have to be widened for future rounds, in my opinion. The integrity of this great competition has to be protected. Swiss Ramble, meanwhile, hello to you, Mr. Swiss, uh, looking forward to someone choosing a single game for their specialist subject. <laughs> well, I think Mr. Ramble and everybody else will be pleasantly surprised, actually, by today's specialist topics, uh, courtesy of today's contestants, Michael Cox and Matt Davis-Adams. And, in fact, it's time now for those two gentlemen, to settle who gets the final quarter-final place with their first-round clash in the Intertotally. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. That's right, listeners, Intertotally Cup, the final first-round matchup, and it's fair to say this is the one that we've all been waiting for. Let's meet the contestants. Up first... He's the man Owen Coyle once referred to as Zone or whoever. He literally wrote the book on the history of the Premier League. He's never faced a quiz question he didn't like the look of. He is Michael Dead Parrot Cox. Wow, Michael, welcome to the It's Totally. Thank you very much. A lot of expectations, I have to say. Are you feeling the pressure at all? Yeah, a little bit. I think Matt's... Uh, I mean, commentators know a lot about football and they also have to know it off the top of their heads and... Shirt numbers is the kind of thing that commentators know very well. I know that's Matt's uh, specialist subject. So, yeah, tough game. But I must say, I was expecting Sasha really to to be the strongest contender in this tournament. So, whichever one of us goes through, you know, I, I was expecting to face Sasha. So, maybe our path to the final is looking a little bit clearer now. Right. It's a wide open field. Very briefly, why Dead Parrot? I've no idea. That's the first time I've uh, I've heard that. I think okay. it's probably a reference to the quiz team in The Office. Ah, he said, still not quite understanding. But moving on, here's your challenger. And his opponent. He's a football commentator and so needs this prize money more than literally every other competitor in this quiz. For me, Clive, the voice of the voiceless. Oh, my word, it's Matt Davis Adams. Great intro, Matt. How are you feeling? 
Um, I mean, we come here with no expectation. Pleased to have been in the draw in the first place. Hugely respectful of the opponent. And just, just hope to try and have some fun with it. Downplay, downplay, downplay. Bit of modestness, downplay. Right, excellent. <laughs> Matt, what do you need from this first round, do you think? Oh, uh, I mean, realistically, probably three. At least three. That's par, I think. Mm, very probably. All right, there's been a broad variety of specialist subjects so far in the quiz. Let's hear what you've both gone for. Matt? Uh, I have gone for Premier League squad numbers, so broad. Yeah, certainly sounds it. As for you, Michael, what will you be answering questions on? Uh, I've gone for World Cup 2010, which, uh, you know, I think is broader than some of the other World Cup specialist subjects we've had so far. Well, there you go. And you're up first, Michael. So here we go with the specialist knowledge round. And question one for you, Michael, on the 2010 World Cup is, which team beat Italy in the group stage to send the holders out? I think that was Slovakia. You're correct. Question two. What unusual reason did Diego Maradona give for selecting defender Ariel Garcia in the Argentina squad? Wow. I really don't know the answer to this one. Unusual reason. Mm. Um, I mean, the only thing I can remember is that he didn't like fullbacks. So I'm going to say it's something to do with that. But I don't think that's the right answer. It's a similarly exotic answer. Maradona said that he had a dream that Argentina won the tournament, but Garces was the only face that he could remember from his dream, so he selected him. <laughs> OK. <laughs> Fair enough. Question three. Whose effort on goal did Luis Suarez punch off the line in the Uruguay against Ghana quarterfinal? Wow. I mean, obviously, it was Asamoah Jan who missed the penalty. Um, I... Just on the basis that he was a striker and might have been shooting, I will say Asamoah Jan. You'd be incorrect, Michael. It was Dominic Adeyer. Question four then, Michael. Which three players appeared in both the Champions League final and the World Cup final in 2010? Uh, so it's Bayern against Inter. So Van Bommel, uh, Wesley Schneider and... Oh, uh, Robin. That's correct. Question five, then. Four players were joint top scorers in this World Cup competition. Who were they? Uh, one was Schneider, again, and the others were Via, Forlan and Thomas Muller. Correct. A strong finish, then, gives you three points out of five. How do you feel about that score? Uh, relatively content. I mean, the yep. the two the two I got wrong, I definitely wouldn't have known if that makes right. sense. So I'm 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 happy I didn't slip up on anything. I'm disappointed with. Okay, very good, very good. Matt Davis Adams then getting three out of five would put you level with Michael Cox as we ask you questions on Premier League squad numbers. Question one: David Beckham had four Premier League squad numbers for Manchester United. What were they? Four. Uh, he started with number 24. He also had 10 and 7. The fourth one, uh, I am struggling to think of. 7, 24, 10. I don't know is the answer, so let's guess at uh, 22. Oh, Was it 23? 20. 20- no, no, it's 28. Oh, okay. I have to say that 
That's a fiendish question. Yeah. OK, then. Question two. Referring to the squad numbers from Arsenal's invincible season, if you add Robert Pires to Lauren, then take away Martin Keown, which player's jersey would you get? Patrick Vieira. That was so fast. Oh, no, it wasn't, was it? It's, we okay, have to accept yeah, the answer. Lauren is two, but he's 12, wasn't he? He's 12. So now who'd you get, Matt? Robert Pires. Yeah. To Lauren. Yeah. Then take away Martin Keown. Henri. Yeah, that's what you would have got. Mm. Come close on all of them, haven't I? But it's not going well. Well, get the next three right and you'll be level with Michael Cox. Question three. Who was Liverpool's number eight before Steven Gerrard? Oyvind Leonhardson. It's incorrect. It's Emil Heskey. <laughs> Question four then. Who is the next player in this sequence? Gianluca Vialli, Chris Sutton, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, Batar Keshman, and... Steve Sidwell. On what basis? Uh, they're all Chelsea number nines, and I think Sidwell was just before Khalid Boularus. What about Ernan Crespo? Uh, Ernan Crespo... Yeah, yeah, because he was before Mourinho, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. OK, then, question five, and this does look crucial now, Matt. To which Premier League great does this sequence of squad numbers belong? 24, 22, 18 and 22. Paul Scholes. It's correct. So at the end of that round, Matt, you have scored one point out of five, but are only two points behind Michael Cox. What do you think? Uh, I think that I should have taken my time over the Arsenal one and then it, mm. we could make a game of it. So I blame myself for that. And the Chelsea one doesn't reflect very well on me either. So it's done a fair bit of damage to my uh, professional reputation so far. Right. We've seen that a two-point lead in the quiz, as in so many competitions, is not necessarily a guarantee of success. So it's all very much in the balance when we return with the general knowledge round later on. See you then. Wow, one out of five and three out of five. Not quite the heavyweight clash so far that uh, we were expecting. When the pressure gets to you, you know, James, when that's the pressure gets to them, they were supposed to be leaders in their, in their fields, really. Mm. And actually, they collapse under the pressure. It's a lesson for everyone. I thought, I thought uh, Cox was gone uh, when I listened to his answers. And you get three out of five. I, I usually expect 100%. Um, from him, but 110, Matt, I would say. Matt I just mean, Matt. unable to make it count. What an opportunity! What an opportunity! Uh, yeah. yeah, I think that Matt was handcuffing himself uh, choosing a, a topic <laughs> like that. It's too wide, indeed. So, well, we're here if they fare better. I'm sure they will. I mean, they have to, right? In the general knowledge round later on. Uh, that, though, is at the back end of today's show because next up, it's the latest chapter in our Champions League story. Season 6, 97-98, possibly our most exciting yet. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Finding pastel de natas in a London cafe? Special. Winning the little jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18 plus 
Listeners, we want to tell you about a beautifully simple way to showcase and sell your photography. PicFerry is used by over 150,000 people worldwide. It's a free platform that allows anyone to sell their photos from complete amateurs like me to seasoned professionals, probably like some of you out there in Podland. And PicFair is so simple. All you do is upload your photos, name your price, and those pics will appear on your personal online photography store. Your photographs will also be listed on PicFair's central marketplace, where images taken by people who've never sold a picture before have been published by The Guardian, Time Out and Rough Guides, and they've even been used on the front cover of National Geographic. Alongside digital downloads, customers can also purchase your photos as beautiful frame prints and canvases. And whether you sell them through your own store or the marketplace, PicFair will produce the prints for you in high-quality labs and take care of all of the shipping. So if you've got time on your hands and you're wondering what to do with all of the brilliant photos you've got lying around on your hard drive or camera roll, go to pickfair.com and sign up for free today. That's P-I-C-F-A-I-R.com. Pickfair, a new home for your photography. On Spotify, Smart Speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Season 6 of the Champions League in many ways, a turning point. For the first time, non-champions were allowed entry, the likes of Newcastle, Paris Saint-Germain and Parma. There goes the neighbourhood. 97-98 brought so much though, the return from the east of Lovanovsky's Dynamo Kiev with a young Andrei Shevchenko. Newcastle beating Barcelona. In fact, everybody beating Barcelona. And Real Madrid finally winning their Septima ending there 30 years of Dolores. Let's dive in. Chasing after him, the cross coming in and it's a good one! It's a hat-trick! A hat-trick for Espria! 3-0! Wonderful stuff for Newcastle! Opening day of the group stage, Barcelona's visit to St James's Park cited by many listeners as their season highlight. That red-haired dude says, how on earth did a La Liga winning Barcelona side featuring Guardiola, Figo, Rivaldo, Stoichkov and Luis Enrique finish bottom of their group with Kiev, PSV and Newcastle? Well, I think that, that Barcelona was always better in the second half of the season under Luis van Gaal, definitely in 97-98 and 98-99. And uh, it took a little bit to the players to adapt to Luis van Gaal's system. Uh, that Barcelona was uh, pretty much crafted uh, that summer, uh, doing panic buy-ins to replace Ronaldo, who had left to Inter Milan. So Sonny Anderson was bought. He was not quite Ronaldo, even though he was... Uh, an all-right striker. Uh, then Rivaldo was bought in the deadline day and uh, it took some time to amalgamate all that, all that talent together. Uh, but by the time that Luis Van Gaal managed to do that, it was too late. Uh, Barcelona in uh, November uh, lost uh, three or four La Liga games. Uh, they also lost a couple of games in Champions League and that uh, was pretty much uh, their full stop in the Champions League uh, campaign that season to the point that uh, some in Barcelona were asking for Luis van Gaal to be sacked uh, in November 1997 uh, because if you check the stats they are really damning for Barcelona I mean uh, Dinamo Kiev uh, scored an aggregate in the group stage against Barcelona of a 7-0 against them. Uh, the consequences of uh, all that bad autumn that Barcelona had was that Vitor Baia was loaned out to, to Porto. Ruth Hesp ended up being Barcelona's goalkeeper. And um, Barcelona ended, ended up becoming the Barcelona of the Dutch players. Uh, 
Van Gaal, uh, the De Boer brothers, uh, signed Patrick Kluivert because Sonny Anderson didn't work. And yeah, it was a Barcelona still in formation, to, to mm. put it some sort of way. And uh, Van Gaal was very clever as well to know that if you cannot beat your rivals, because PSV and Doven was in that, uh, in that group with Barcelona and Dinamo Kiev and Newcastle, if you cannot beat them, you have to buy them. And right. he bought uh, Koku and uh, Zenden as well from that PSV and Doven. And the season after, Barcelona was a better team. All right, as for Newcastle, they followed up a good 2-2 draw away in Kiev with three consecutive defeats to uh, lose any chance of qualifying. Dinamo Kiev, meanwhile, turned out to be the revelations of the group. As you mentioned, Alvaro, with that extraordinary aggregate 7-0 scoreline over Barcelona, when they beat them in Kiev, I think a lot of people put it down to one of those days, but to then go to the camp now and beat them 4-0 there, hat-trick for Sheva, Rebrov gets the fourth. Tottenham wisely bought Redbrov. Well, it was a great partnership. I mean, Redbrov has sort of largely been discredited because of yeah his move and his career did not um, move in the same direction as, as Shevchenko. Um, yeah, Sheva, who would what become AC Milan's second all-time top scorer and win the Ballon d'Or. Uh, I think it'd be the what the second player from Kiev from a Lobanovsky side to win that award, and uh, I think. These two years of Dinamo Kiev in this in this competition, um, certainly in 98-99, you had the feeling that they could win it. They were put out by by Bayern Munich. But watching back the footage of Shevchenko's performance that night, it's not just again as Alvaro was mentioning with Tino Spria the headers that he scores because he scores two um, two headers and a penalty. Um, but just how much running he was doing on the right-hand side, how many times that a Barcelona player had the ball, thought they had time, uh, was kind of scanning their options and would have the ball taken away from them from Sheva. It felt that that was a real kind of coming-out party, a breakout season for for Sheva in Europe. And again, that this Kiev side could maybe emulate or even do better than the Lobanovsky vintages that won what the Cup Winners' Cup in '75 and '86, um, because certainly, you know, Rebrov and, and Shevchenko, they they had something really special going on. How special was this Kiev side with this uh, legendary figure at their helm, Lobanovsky, on his third stint with Dinamo Kiev, a man who had won two Cup Winners' Cups with them, then taken Russia to the uh, 88 European Championships final with the Netherlands, a man who also brought computer analysis to football two decades before the likes of Sam Allardyce. Jules, how revolutionary was the whole Lobanovsky project? I think it was. The, the three stints that he had at the club, the, the earlier one that James mentioned with blocking and etc. in the 70s and after that finishing with that great generation. I, I do always wonder if he recognised very early that he had a very special generation and that's why he came back in, in, in the 90s as well to go and coach Shevchenko and Rebrov because he, he could see that with his philosophy and his idea and, and that sort of pressing your own half and then going very quickly forward, those players would fit perfectly. And I think that was the key of the success that he had the squad, one, a very talented squad and two, a squad that was perfectly fitted for what kind of football he wanted to implement and wanted to play. And I think... To come back again at his age and to have those kind of results, like James said, those two Champions League back-to-back, the 97-98, the, the, the current one we're looking at, and then the next one was absolutely phenomenal. And the 97-98, uh, 
started, if you remember, in, in Wales against Barrytown in the first qualifying round of the Champions League that year, which is quite incredible. Uh, a bit like Ajax did last season. They went through every qualifying round and then into the group stages and, and etc. But it was just so refreshing, I think, to see them playing the way they did at that time. Also in the Champions League that year, uh, their only ever appearance in this competition were Palmer, who had Carlo Ancelotti as their boss. He turned down, he blocked the club's purchase of Roberto Baggio that summer and perhaps not uncoincidentally didn't get out of the group behind Borussia Dortmund, Sparta Prague and Galatasaray. The other Italian team in uh, the Champions League were, of course, Juventus. And once again, they were in a group with Man United. Second year of three that these two teams would face each other. United, as we mentioned, very much taking Juve as a yardstick of their European progress. This time, James, they'd really got the measure of them. The drugs don't work They just make you worse But I know I'll see your face again And here's Gates Oh, I don't believe that! That's an astonishing goal! I think it's quite interesting what uh, Alvaro was saying about Barcelona earlier because um, Juve every summer um, from going to one final to another, changed the team. They sold players, um, they brought in new strikers more often than not. So, for example, Christian Vieri uh, leaves for Atletico Madrid, where he finishes top scorer in La Liga. Um, I think they sell Jugovic as well. And, uh, and certainly for this game at Old Trafford, which is a great game, seek it out on, on YouTube because it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's end to end. I think you, you get a real sense of the atmosphere and, uh, and United just carried carried by it um, as well. Um, it didn't look like it was going to go their way again because Juventus took the lead, what, within a minute through Del Piero. Suspicion of offside. I think this is where Sir Alex Ferguson you know, became resolute in his, uh, his belief that Pippo Inzaghi was born offside. United then just dominate um, and yeah, have a goal disallowed from Sheringham. Sheringham then scores a towering header. Um, it gets worse for Juve because Didier Deschamps had got uh, sent off and he was already having to run all over the midfield because uh, Juventus were without Antonio Conte and uh, Angelo De Livio. So it was a slightly depleted Juventus team. But all the same, it did feel that United were fine after reaching the semi-final the year before, um, were beginning to acclimate to these big Champions League nights mm. um, and would end up winning this group with what I think was the the highest points tally in the group stage that year along with the holders um, Borussia Dortmund Right Ryan Giggs scored the final goal that night at uh, Old Trafford with a phenomenal performance in the first leg second leg by this point, Man United were already qualified for the knockout stages and took their foot off the gas, I think it's fair to say, as Juve went through with a 1-0 win, meaning that even though they had the same points as PSG, they took a place in the next round and the prison stayed at home, Jules. How about that? Yeah, they did. Only the two best runners-up were, were going through anyway and on goal difference, uh, as you said, they were knocked out. It was a, it was a, it was a good group stages for PSG in the end. If you, if you look at it, they won't. Four games, lost two. They lost heavily in, in Munich against Bayern 5-1, but they won 3-1 at the Parc des Princes uh, in, the, in the return fixture. The one that cost them is the defeat at Besiktas, where they were, from what I can remember, horrible. It was a horrible performance. They were just not... They, they never turned up, and I think that would cost them eventually their qualification. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. 
football pundits who actually understand management special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbegumbleware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. into 1998 then and the knockout stages. And with the World Cup looming that summer in France, spring was all about Obar Obar and Brazil running rothschilds through an airport all over your TV. This, of course, was before there was the no liquids and security measures when you literally could play football through an X-ray machine and then out onto the tarmac. Well, we'll come on to that advert later on, but I know, James, it's very special for you. Oh, I love that. I think that's one of the best... <laughs> Uh, if not the best football advert of all time, it got me so excited for the mm. for the '98 World Cup. And right. um, yeah, I think for me, and it, it's it's good that we're talking about this season because I think the Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo, uh, was uh, a player who I don't think we'd ever seen anything of his like before in in terms of uh, what he could do uh, at speed with skill, um, and it was. That that for me is the year of of, of Ronaldo for mm. for good good and bad reasons. It was the last year we'd seen before the knee blew out, and the same goes for Alessandro Del Piero. Because Ronaldo wasn't in the Champions League; he was in the UEFA Cup uh, with Inter. We'll talk a little bit more about what happened in that later on. But knockout rounds then in the Champions League, in the quarterfinals, that Juve by now had picked up Edgar Davids from Milan, and they ended uh, Dinamo Kiev's run in front of 100,000 fans at the Olympus Stadion with a super Pippo Inzaghi hat-trick. Man United's run, meanwhile, ended abruptly at the hands of Monaco, Jules. Akbar Chaudhry says, fun fact, the Trezeguet goal at Old Trafford that essentially knocked United out was measured at 96 miles per hour. Pow! They were, they were exciting. Let's talk about that Monaco side. Yeah, they, they won the league the, the year before. Uh, that's why they qualified for the Champions League. Sonny Anderson was the big star player at that time in that team. And then, as Alvaro said a bit earlier on the show, he left for Barcelona. And it was the, it was the perfect move for Monaco. They were so happy to take that money because, obviously, they had in their reserve team or in the first team, a very young David Trezeguet and Thierry Henry as well, as well as Victor Ikpeba, the Nigerian international. But it was really, it felt like the time more for Trezeguet even than Henry to have the space finally in the first team and to explode and, and, and show all his talent. And that's exactly what Trezeguet did that season. Uh, the, the year before when they won the league, Anderson had 19 goals in Ligue 1 and Trezeguet had 18 goals in his first season at, at 19 years of age after Sonny had left. And it was a, a very interesting team. John Collins, the Scottish player, he was Scottish, wasn't mm. he? Was was one of the, the most experienced players there with Ali Benarbia. Uh, and, and players like that. You, but you had a very, very good group of young players coming through, Henri et Trezeguet, but Julie as well. Martin Jetu was only 22 then, who then went on to play for, for Parma. Uh, you had a very young uh, Philippe Christenval, who was 18 and already making a name for himself back home in that team. So it was a, it was a team with a lot of youth and energy and talent everywhere. And, and those two games against United, the first one, he finished nil-nil at the Stade Louis II. And then they were a bit lucky in the second leg because I think United were without Giggs, Keane, 
I think Pallister as well and they had a lot of injuries and Monaco had Trezeguet back for that second leg and he made a big difference. Andrew Lang says, I used to raid that Monaco team in Championship Manager 2, 97-98 as my mate kept talking about Terry Henry up front. Back in the, That was before he made that move which didn't really work out to Juventus where he was played out on the wing. Juve then picked up Trezeguet of course and did rather better uh, with him. And Trezeguet was really the biggest of the two. He had the best season. Thierry only scored four goals in the league that year. He did better in Europe. I think he scored six or seven in Europe. But Trezeguet had a wonderful season that year and, and you did wonder why why was Juve going for Henri instead of Trezeguet at that time? Trezeguet was by far the, the, the more mature player, the more established and would have been a better choice for them already then. Monaco went out in the semi-finals of the competition in another of uh, that season's iconic performances from Juventus, 4-1. Uh, Alessandro Del Piero this time with the hat-trick against a hat Well, have you noticed how many hat-tricks we've spoken about today mm. with Aspria, Shevchenko, Andy Cole scored one against Feyenoord. Um, you then got Inzaghi doing the one at Dinamo Kiev and then this Del Piero one, which begins with a classic Del Piero free kick. Barriera forse troppo vicina, parte del Piero ed è gol. Ed è rete! Rete fantastica! Incredibile. Del Piero ancora Quando una volta trova l'incrocio dei pali. When they signed Trezeguet, they, they essentially stopped signing other strikers aside from aside from Ibrahimovic. They, they, they the Del Piero Trezeguet um, front two, which is I think arguably the best front two Juventus had, because Trezeguet went on to become their all-time top foreign goal scorer, um, which when you think about some of the players Juventus have had, that's that's a hell of an achievement. But in this tie, yeah, they get two penalties as well. Yeah, dodgy, uh, dodgy, <laughs> a bit dodgy. <laughs> um, but even in the second leg, um, if I'm not mistaken, they take the lead in that. Already having that big advantage from the the first one, it's it, it even though Monaco came back in that second leg, it was it was finished. I must say, I think Juventus in the knockout games, quarterfinal, semifinal, again, they just looked unbeatable. They were just trouncing everyone. Possibly the the most exciting, most free-scoring of Lippi's Juve sides. But let's now have a word, eh, Alvaro, about the team that actually won the thing. Who was that, Alvaro? Mecano, a really popular band in Spain um, mm. that started in the 80s and um, yeah, went on for a number of years, maybe a decade. And then, uh, like it happens with the big bands, uh, at some point they dissolved. <laughs> We've seen it happen so many times. J- Julian, you were enjoying that. Yeah, they were big in France. We were talking about it with Alvaro. They were, they were big, they were singing in French. They had a few uh, sort of partnership with French bands and stuff like that. I remember them really well. All right, El Club de los Humildes. What does that mean, Alvaro? Uh, the Club of the Humble. Right. Well, we're going to talk about Real Madrid. So, mm. <laughs> uh, Real Madrid had been waiting 32 years in 1998, uh, since the 60s, without a European Cup triumph. Extraordinary thought when you think of how many they've, they've won now. The previous season to this, Fabio Capello had been manager, he won the title with them, and he brought in a whole heap of players... Uh, forming the bedrock of uh, this season's European champions, Alvaro. Yes, absolutely. I think that what happened in summer 1996 explains what happened in 
May 1998. I mean, the, the signings that Real Madrid did that summer were key. Um, Petja Miljatovic was signed by Real Madrid and at the time was the most expensive um, ever player in La Liga. And I think that the song um, fits in a way the club of the humbles because uh, Real Madrid at that time uh, had a tremendous depth. Uh, it was a club that uh, at the time hadn't done the leap into modernity. And uh, I think that uh, it's very telling what uh, Sanchez and Real Madrid captain said uh, years after winning that Champions League in 1998, that that is the most important title in Real Madrid's history. And thinking about it now, I cannot disagree too much because it was 32 years that Real Madrid uh, hadn't won the, the European Cup. Uh, it was the first uh, Champions League that they won in Technicolor, to put it in some sort of way. And also... From then, Real Madrid has uh, created a, a new culture of winning uh, no matter what. And they won seven Champions League from that point, from 1998 onwards. And now they've got 13. And if you think about it, having won seven Champions League since 1998 until now, it's uh, a lot. And uh, probably the modern history of Real Madrid is now as uh, prosperous as uh, the old history of Real Madrid is. And mm. what happened in 1998, it's... Uh, it's very important for them. I remember that everyone in Spain had the sense and the feeling that Juventus was the favorite for that final. Real Madrid ended uh, fourth in that La Liga campaign. Mm. Uh, and Jupp Heynckes uh, had uh, admitted to Lorenzo Sanz, the president, that he was devastated because he had lost the control of the locker room at Real Madrid. So Real Madrid didn't reach this final in a really great fashion. But at the same time, if you do the combined 11 of that Juventus and that Real Madrid right now, you will realize that Real Madrid was not the underdog at all. Okay, Juventus have been doing really well in domestically and in European terms as well, but Real Madrid had very good players, and uh, they end up winning the final with the goal of Petja Miljatovic, and I'm delighted that Miljatovic scored the goal in that final, because otherwise he would have gone a little bit overlooked um, uh, by all of us, because he was a player who never had the chance to sign with Yugoslavia, because uh, the Balkans went into war, he was a player that uh, when he arrived in Valencia, uh, he was already 24, 25 years old. He was fantastic. He scored a, a couple of goals in the Liga from the halfway line playing for Valencia. But it wasn't until he scored the goal with Real Madrid in Amsterdam that he became that legendary player. And I think that he was really good. He, he got a lot of quality. And the fact that he came Like scoring second, goals offside. Uh, not as many as uh, Pipo Inzaghi, James. Uh, I think that uh, <laughs> I think that not as many. But the fact that Petja Miljatovic came second in the Ballon d'Or contest mm. in 1997 tells you a lot about how good he is. Well, 20th of May 1998, then at the Amsterdam Arena, which felt pretty futuristic back then. There they were, Real Madrid and Juve, two of Europe's colossi, uh, meeting up. Real Madrid, you mentioned comparing the 11. So Real Madrid lined up with Bodo Elna, Sanchez, Panucci, Roberto Carlos, Raul, Hierro, Canembeo, uh, Seydorf, Redondo, Miatovic and Morientes. Juve's starting lineup was Peruzzi, Torricelli, Montero, Giuliano, Delivio, Deschamps, Davids, Pesotto, Zidane, Del Piero and Pippo Inzaghi. Right. I think that we can say that probably Juventus was better trained, better coached mm -hmm. than Real Madrid. But at the same time, Real Madrid had a lot of talent to the point that Raúl had to be casted away to the left flank because Morientes and Miljatovic had to play. So that was the amount of talent that Real Madrid had. And I would like to put a special word uh, on uh, 
Christian Karambe, the French guy. Yes, my man, uh, I was going to say. I was and Jules say. knows why. I mean, he's the he, best player in the knockout stages. He's the yes, best player at Real Madrid. He, Jules, he scored three goals in the knockout stages to take Real Madrid, not single-handedly, uh, but definitely he got a huge contribution in the, in the run to the final. Yeah, I mean, he could not really play football, but he could run and he was just running and running and running and it was so important to get the ball back and to and then just giving it to players who could actually play and it was fantastic and by the way he went on to win the world cup with france the same season the same summer only nine players in the history of the game have won this the champions league and the world cup the same season so really? that's that's you know that's really rare. how many of them are french jules two who is the other one i mean we only won the world cup twice so it's it's easy Rafael Bagan. Yeah, Bagan. Yes, was going to say Benzema, I don't know why. No, yeah, Roberto Carlos in in 02 won the World Cup after having won the uh, the Champions League, and then Sepp Mayer, Breitner, Beckenbauer, Gerd Müller, and Schwarzerbeck with Bayern Munich in '74 and Germany in '74. Nice. Okay, well, back in 1998, a bit like the previous year, Juve had been favourites and started off probably the better team. The game remained goalless with your friend Canabel. Doing a job, I think it's fair to say, on Zinedine Zidane. Until the 66th minute, when Real took the lead. Roberto Carlos fires one in. The ball bounces off Mark Juliano. And Peja Mejatovic takes it round Angelo Peruzzi and had the moment that he dreamed of. Roberto Carlos. Roberto Carlos Villatovic. Goal! Ha marcado el Madrid. Ha marcado Villatovic. Minuto 21 de la segunda partida. And I mean literally dreamed of because apparently... This is the story afterwards. Uh, Fernando Sanz awoke in the middle of the night, the night before the game, uh, having had this dream that Peja Mijatovic was going to score the winner in the final. And he basically tells Mijatovic this. Mijatovic had also convinced himself that he was going to score. And he'd woken up his roommate, it was Davos Shuka, and said, we're going to win 1-0 and I'm going to score the winner. Imagine the scenes there in their pyjamas. There you go. And you should know that Petja Mijatovic had a little bit of an niggling injury before that game and he didn't tell anybody. Well, well, he actually, did, he not tell, did he not get checked out by the doctors but swear them to secrecy? Because if Jupp Heinz found out, he wouldn't have played him. Okay, I'll rephrase that. He didn't tell okay. the person that mattered. The manager, right. Real Madrid president Lorenzo Sanz, uh, he was so delighted with the victory that he fired Jupp Heinz soon afterwards, as is the uh, classic Real Madrid uh, fashion. But it didn't matter because... Real Madrid were back. And as you say, Alvaro, the kind of modern era of their Euro dominance, does it start with that game? Definitely, I would say yes. And uh, it's because Real Madrid broke uh, like a historic barrier that they, they had been uh, fighting against for many years. Uh, that was the time when I think Real Madrid, as I said before, just uh, made a step towards modernity and a step towards what they are now. A club that uh, doesn't necessarily need to do very well win Champions Leagues. In fact, uh, I was checking before, they have only done the European and uh, domestic double uh, three times out of 13. So this victory was very fitting into the Real Madrid news history. Uh, they ended up being fourth in that La Liga campaign and no matter what, they, they won Champions League. But they weren't used to that success. And I think that the biggest... Uh, symbol of that is the fact that Real Madrid didn't have any champagne to prepare uh, for the victory in case they won the Champions League and they had to ask for their champagne to Juventus. They got Juventus champagne to celebrate the victory. 
they weren't just ready, they didn't have that culture of winning. So they, they were even a bit, little bit, how to put it, naive when it came to celebrations as well. It was an ugly final. Um, there was 51 fouls in the final in 19 minutes. If you look at the one the, the following year in 99, they made 21 fouls between United and Bayern Munich. 51, I think, is the highest in the history. It must be the highest in the history of Champions League finals. And it was a very, I thought, aggressive final. Watching it again yesterday, it was it was just not flowing and fluidity and, and that kind of football. And, and yeah, that's what I remembered from it from all those years ago. Well, didn't matter. Real Madrid got their seventh. And they're now on 13. Phenomenal. Before we conclude, I'll look back at 97-98. Let's have a quick word on that season's UEFA Cup, the final of which featured Inter, who were back after their defeat, of course, to Schalke in the previous year's two-legged final, taking on Lazio in what was the fourth all-Italian final of the decade. Now, this was at the Parc des Princes. I was Jules, there. were you there? Yeah, I was there. And oh, right. I was on Big the... Big Lazio s- fan, Jules. Of course, yeah, I was with the Lazio Ultras, you know, in the... Uh, no, but I was, I was sat uh, sideways on the pitch and I was on the side where Ronaldo did his uh, very famous flip-flap by the touchline. If you remember, of course, he scored that lovely double-step-over goal, mm. uh, one-on-one with, with the keeper. But he also did that incredible piece of, of skills on the touchline, near the touchline, where he did that flip-flap to dribble past two Lazio players. And I was literally sat right there or not far from there. And it was seeing Ronaldo live like this was absolutely incredible. He was on that game, he was unplayable. Ronaldo is probably the, the player that has had more a bigger impact on, on me as a football supporter. And I don't think that this is because I was too young. I was already 14 or 15 years old when Ronaldo played in La Liga and uh, then he went to Serie A and I think that everyone in Italy can tell you the same thing, that the impact of Ronaldo in that league was tremendous. I mean, he was a player that uh, suddenly started dominating La Liga uh, and Serie A and the rest of the stars in that domestic tournament seemed to be nobody in comparison to Ronaldo. And I think that Mijatovic, for example, was a tremendous player, but he was totally overshadowed by the quality of uh, this Brazilian guy who suddenly started scoring 35, 34 goals per season just for fun. I mean, it was astonishing. Yeah, I think it's amazing when you listen to any of the kind of Hall of Fame defenders uh, from Serie A in that era. And they all say um, unanimously that the best striker that they have ever come up against. And we're talking people like, you know, Paolo Maldini, Fabio Cannavaro, Franco Beresi. It's Ronaldo, hands down, um, because he could beat you for pace. He could beat you with skill. It was something that came so naturally to him as all of his inter-teammates found out. He trained when he wanted. You know, know, most of the time he would come in after a night out with Christian Vieri and he was still the best, best player they'd ever seen, still the best player in training. So... I think this UEFA Cup final in particular, as Jules mentioned, with that uh, that double step over completely bamboozling uh, Luca Marchegiani is one of the iconic UEFA moments. It's one of the iconic Ronaldo moments, uh, particularly that kind of shot behind uh, Marchegiani's shoulder where you just see the swaying of kind of Ronaldo's hips. He was unplayable that night. He hit the crossbar as well. Bam Bam Zamorano was unplayable that night as well. Probably got the man of the match. Um, they absolutely floored a very good Lazio side, which was at the beginning of its cycle. Lazio had won the Coppa Italia, um, I think, the week before. And 
I spoke to Sven uh, Goran Eriksson, who was the manager a couple of weeks ago, and Sven said that it showed how this game particularly showed how immature his Lazio sides still were because they were too delighted to have won their first piece of silverware a week beforehand and weren't mentally ready uh, for, for, for this game. Just later this summer, Ronaldo had another final in the same city, Paris. It didn't work out so well, but this one here... Possibly his greatest performance for the Nerazzurri. Was it the best performance you've ever seen by a player live, right in front of your young eyes? Yeah, a hundred percent. I would. It was. It was really breathtaking, and I think the whole Parc des Princes was watching just Ronaldo through that game. I, I, I agree with James that Zamorano was great that day, and, and collectively Inter was so good. But everybody was just waiting for Ronaldo to touch the ball because every time he was touching the ball, something was was happening. And in that UEFA Cup, he scored six goals but was not the top scorer. Who was the top scorer in the UEFA Cup that year? The swimming pool salesman, Stefan Givarch, <laughs> scored seven <laughs> goals, one more than Ronaldo, you see? And what a World Cup he'd have, Jules. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, incredible. The, the, right. the swimming pool salesman then went on to win the World Cup as well against Ronaldo in the final, but at the Stade de France, so just across the city. All right, but he never made a Nike ever. Well, that was 97, 98, and I feel like there's loads more stories we could touch on then, and possibly we will. Might be a bit more Ronaldo in a forthcoming Golazzo in the future. Uh, still to come, though, on today's Totally Football Show, we've got the dramatic final of our quiz, Matt against Michael. And after this, a bit more chat about ads. All right, so Perez was asking about the best football ad of all time and mentioning the glorious airport romp that uh, Nike gave us to prepare for the 98 World Cup, which, James, is your favourite, as you mentioned before. Jules, what's your nomination? My favourite is the another Nike advert, is the cage one, when they play 3v3 in the cage with Cantona right. being the, uh, the master of ceremony, throwing the ball with his tuxedo, and then the 3v3 um, okay. going. And actually, I was wondering if you could... There was, there was eight teams. Oh. Uh, one team ended up winning the whole tournament. Oh, no. And if you could remember some of those teams, <laughs> one was called Triple Espresso. He had one Italian player, one Japanese and one French yeah. player. Who was Totti, yeah, Totti in it. Totti in it. Who was Nakata in it? And then the French one. We're going to do all eight teams, Jules. Yeah, of course. We've got time. No, Zidane? No, no, no. Oh, no, he's an Adidas no. player. Yeah. yeah, Henri was in that team. Then you what had the team. one touchables. Right. With Von Nilsteroy's Vieira and Scholes, who beat right. the Triple Espressos. Yeah. The Toros <laughs> Locos, Saviola, Luis yeah. Enrique, and Freddie Ljungberg. Mm-hmm. Against the Cerberus, Edgar Davids, Viltor, and Turam. The right. Cerberus won. Then the Funk <laughs> Seoul brothers, Danilson, <laughs> Seoul, and Ronaldinho. Yeah. Against Os Tornados. Surely you remember Os Tornados. Yeah, <laughs> this is all something like Coke adult ad directors kind of. I think I it's, mean, brilliant. Now, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Jim, Jim, listen. I, I like In terms of the advert, it didn't work as well as their other ones. It didn't have the iconic oh, no moment. Way. I it didn't have the au revoir Cantona moment of the devils. It didn't but have had, the, gl- the Do you remember glorious. how he celebrated when they scored? He was like, was oh, what a goal! Quel yeah, but! He was going mad. All right. And Ostoneros, Tornados. That's your favorite. Are you still going? Ronaldo. Figo and Roberto Carlos yeah, yeah, together yeah. in the same like books. three aside. Alvaro, what's your favorite? Come Alvaro? on, they won it by the way. Okay, the most iconic has to be uh, 
1998 Brazil uh, ad, um, the one that James okay. loves. Okay, But good. my favorite is the Yoga Bonito series in 2005-2006 ahead okay, of the Germany World Cup. And right. I remember that they featured different players uh, competing with each other. And there is especially one that I love um, with Zlatan Ibrahimovic uh, just uh, confirming the legend that said that uh, he could actually kick a chewing gum. Keep it up with a chewing gum and then put mm -hmm. it back in his mouth. That advert is fantastic. All right, they're all great adverts, but for me, it was always right the future. The extraordinary three-minute opus which, uh, which they made for the 2010 World Cup. Yes. Right the future, because it had the music, Hocus Pocus by Focus. It was just stuffed with iconic shots. You had Rooney in the caravan with the baked beans. You had Ronaldinho's Samba going viral. Uh, which they then had to reshoot because he got dropped. So apparently they had to do a reshoot, which I've never seen, with Hobinho. A bit of a collector's item, that must be. You also had stuff like Cesc throwing the paper away when Rudy comes back and scores. And above all, you had the Che Cannavaro moment. Che Cannavaro. Che Capitano. Literally, in three minutes, it's everything that you're dreaming that a World Cup can be. And it won that year the uh, the the Golden Lion at Cannes for the best film advert. So you know, it's not not just me. Alejandro González Inaritu. Inaritu, yeah, so, of course, yeah. yeah, yeah, proper director. Not sure who who directed your one, Jules, but uh, Eric Cantona so what, he, himself. He's the guy who did the Revenant, yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, Amores Perros. <laughs> yeah. Twenty one yeah. grams. Mm. I mean, I, I remember going taking my wife to see Twenty One Grams. Oh my God. <laughs> is there a more depressing film to go and see on a date night? I did not read the review. Jesus. Which is 21 grams, of course, which is also what the uh, direc ad director for your one, uh, The Cage, had taken. Before. <laughs> <laughs> up with those the Cage was too. phenomenal. I'm, I'm sure listeners will agree yeah. with me. I'm sure. All right. If you were to play in a, in a, in a team with two other players, Jimbo, yeah. for a 3v3 tournament, who would you pick? That's the question. Who would, you could pick anyone you want. Past players, current players. Right. Who would Future you pick? Future players. Okay. Future so you're players. saying James would be, would be in the team? Yeah, yeah. He would be the, the captain. Crikey. Who would yours be? I mean, be? everyone would want Jimbo in their team, but who would he want yeah, yeah, in yeah. his team? <laughs> who would yours be, Jules? <laughs> I'd go for Zidane. In a 3v3, you need Zidane. And then I would go for like a tough defender, you know, like... Um, Yeah, Cannavaro or someone like... Oh, Van Dijk. I would pick Van Dijk now right. and Zidane of those years and me. And right. Oh, my event. God. What a team. What Alvaro, a team. two names from you? From that time, I will go for JJ Okocha and Zidane. Okay. James, from you? Oh, attacking. attacking. I would go with Paolo Montero and uh, Pasquale <laughs> Bruno and it would it'd be called Fight Club. Break legs. Fight Club. Nice. <laughs> nice. I'm going to leave that there for now, but I'm sure we'll come back to this topic with you hopefully soon. Uh, but waiting their turn to settle uh, their first round match, the final first round match in the Intertotally, are Matt and Michael. So let's get going with that. All right, then. Welcome back to Matt Davis-Adams and Michael Cox. Hi, James. Hello. Hello. The situation, as you probably recall, Michael had a slightly disappointing specialist subject, uh, scoring only three points out of five, but was then comforted to see his rival, Matt Davis-Adams, score a meagre one, a paltry point in his specialist subject, which admittedly was the very broad uh, Premier League jersey numbers. So, Matt, you are two points behind, Michael, as we approach the general knowledge round. Can you do it? 
Probably not, but we'll we'll give it a go. It all depends on what Michael does in the general knowledge. You can end this right now, Michael, as you go first with your five questions beginning thus. What do the following teams have in common? Benfica, Ajax, Stour Bucharest, Benfica again, Barcelona, Juventus and Liverpool. Uh, Do you want the list again? Yes, please. Benfica, Ajax, Stour Bucharest, Benfica again, Barcelona, Juventus and Liverpool. What do those teams all have in common? I don't know. I'm going to guess they, just on the basis of Liverpool, they won the European Cup the year after they lost the final. Mm. It is a European Cup-related answer. They're actually the teams that Milan beat to win their European Cup and Champions League titles. Uh, fair mm. yeah. Question two. Who scored the Czech Republic's goal in the 1996 European Championship final? Uh, it was a penalty, I think, by Patrick Berger. Is correct. Question three. PSG have won seven of the last eight Ligue 1 titles. Who was the manager in the season when they didn't win it? So it was Monaco. Oh, sorry, you mean the PSG manager? Yes. Who was the PSG manager in the season that they didn't win it? Uh, Unai Emery. Is correct. What do the following players have in common? Peter Beardsley, Andre Kentschelskis, Andy Cole and Owen Hargreaves. What do the following players have in common? Peter Beardsley, Andrik Anchelskis, Andy Cole and Owen Hargreaves. Have they all played for both Manchester clubs? It's correct. So you've now taken your total to six points out of nine. With the correct answer here, you can put this beyond Matt Davis Adams' reach. So question five. What is the next club in this sequence? Liverpool. Manchester City, Arsenal, Tottenham, Manchester United, and who? <laughs> Sorry, go, go again. So next club in this sequence, Liverpool, Manchester City, Arsenal, Tottenham, Manchester United, and then who? I can't work out what that sequence is. I will guess, purely on the basis they're the only big six club not there, I'll guess Chelsea. Is incorrect. They're actually the last six Premier League runners-up, a sextet completed by Liverpool. Okay. Liverpool would have been the last name in that sequence. So, Michael, at the end of your general knowledge round, you have scored three out of five, giving you a total of six. So, Matt, with five correct answers in your general knowledge round, you can pull level and force a tie-break. Extraordinary pressure. Yeah, I mean... If if it happens and it's a big if, it's it's going to go down in the annals of this competition. And, and let's face it, we could do with a good news story from it, given what's happened in recent weeks. <laughs> Enough said. All right then, Matt. Here come your general knowledge questions. Question one: Name the only player to score an own goal in a World Cup final. Oh my goodness me! Uh, okay, Hugo Lloris. It's incorrect, Matt. It was Mario Mandzukic in 2018. Oh. Right. The rest of your questions. Question two. At which club was Jose Mourinho's first managerial job? Guimaraes. Uh, no, it was Benfica. 
Question three. English teams won the European Cup in seven out of eight years between 1977 and 1984. But which team won the one they didn't win? So English teams won seven out of eight European Cups between 77 and 84. Who was the interloper? Who was the non-English team breaking up that run? Mm. Ajax. Hamburg beating Juventus in 1983. Question four. Which of the following venues did not host a game at Euro 96? Did not host a game. Hillsborough, Goodison Park, St James's Park, Villa Park and Elland Road. Oh, it's between two. I am going to say Goodison Park. Is correct. Yes. Man. Yes. I needed that just, yes. just for my own well-being. Some consolation there. And can you add to it as we ask you question five? Who was the Milan manager the last time they won Serie A? The last time they won Serie A. Hmm. Oh. Uh, Carlo Ancelotti? Was uh, not Carlo Ancelotti. It was it was Max Allegri. Oh, he's going to be my second guess as well. So that's uh, one, two, two points out of ten for you, Matt. Is that what, the lowest what, what you so think? far? I, I it is it the is. lowest so right, far. Carl okay. Anker is now suddenly looking like a genuine contender for a semi-final place. What do you think happened to you two then in in, in that? With were, were the questions particularly fiendish? Uh, I'm still kicking myself about the Lauren one because I knew that, and right. to a lesser extent, the Crespo one. Um, the rest of them, I just didn't know the answers to. Simple as that. Right, fair enough. Michael, you're through. Are you happy? Yeah. Uh, it was, I mean, that was tough. I thought both uh, both sets of questions were really difficult for, for both players. I think Matt emerges from uh, the competition with more credit than Jack Lang, <laughs> whose uh, victory last week was a genuine disgrace. So there you go. Right. Every competition needs a heel. Am I right? That's true. Yeah. I mean, can I just say uh, as an independent contractor to any potential employers listening, I, I do do research and stuff when I commentate <laughs> on games. So, so I will come to it more prepared than I have done with this one. Please don't disregard me for any future work. You'll always have a home with us here on Totally Matt. <laughs> Lovely to speak to you and we'll see you soon. Uh, probably this Sunday, actually, for Monday's Totally Football Show. And Michael, you go through to that big, big matchup with Carl Anker in the quarterfinals. Hurrah! Great, looking forward to it. I think it's fair to say that was not what we were expecting. A disastrous from Matt Davis-Adams. Coxie, meanwhile, the joint lowest qualifier, uh, with his six points out of ten alongside the man he'll be facing in the quarterfinals, conveniently enough, Carl Anker. Of course, Alvaro, Jules and James, you've all taken your place in the next round with eight out of ten. I'm uh, scared about Pat Nevin, my next opponent. I mean, right. Because he's got, uh, let's put it this way, he has witnessed many of the past seasons that we will be talking about. Delicately even alive, Are you just saying no. he's very old? Yeah, he's really old. Oh, my God. That's not a good start for you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You'll have that pinned on the dressing room wall ahead of your clash, which is coming up in Sunday night, Monday morning's Totally Football Show. Alvaro taking on Pat for a place in the semi-finals. The other quarter-finals will be Daniel Story up against you, Julian Laurence. Yes, big game. That is going to be huge. Well, uh, James Horncastle, you'll be taking on... Emma Saunders beating Jack Lang. Ooh. Yeah, 
Lang and I progressing with our astute use of the loophole, which was to let someone else go first on the tiebreaker and then just add one. Um, so who's on the right side of the draw? That's what I want to know. Is it is it me and Lang now with Anchor and Cox qualifying with such poor marks? Well, you know what, James? You mm. and Lang are on one side of the draw with Cox and Carl Anker. So that's very much the athletic side of the draw. And the other side of the draw has Julianne and Daniel Storey, who put Rafa out, of course, and Pat and Alvaro. So athletic v non-athletic, that's exciting, isn't it? Has, uh, has Rafa Einstein explained the, uh, the reasons of his uh, collapse and elimination? Do we know uh, what nope. happened? It would be the motivation for a kind of Das Reboot-style book. It's very much kind of Honigstein's <laughs> Euro 2000. <laughs> he is the Bertie yeah, books of our quiz. He will pitch right. the idea very soon. Looking forward then, Alvaro, to hearing you taking on uh, wise and old Pat Nevin uh, on a Sunday or Monday morning, perhaps, for you listener. But that's it for today's show. Quick reminder as well, we've got a two-part Golazzo out at the moment, exploring the extraordinary world of the ultras in Italy uh, and loads of other great content too, all of which is timeless. That's the great thing about nobody playing any football. Uh, do join us anyway on Sunday night, Monday morning. We'll have uh, Matt and Michael back for that alongside Daniel Story for now. Many thanks to Alvaro, to Julian, and to James, and to you, listener. And we'll catch up with you soon. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter, and make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees. Media.